This is Times Like Now, an interview program with interesting people who are doing cool stuff. I'm Trevor Collins. Past episodes can be found wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is about the intersection where medical science meets ethics. Just because we can do something does not mean that we should. My guest today, Brandy Skillishay, is a doctor and an author who's written a true account of one of the most interesting ideas in medical ethics, the transplanting of a human brain, on this episode of Times Like Now. Good morning, Dr. Skillishay. Thank you so much for being with me. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. I have been I have not had time to read the entire book, Mr. Humble and Dr. Butcher, but I've been reading a lot about the book and New York Times called this delightfully macabre. And that must be a, a kind of a compliment, I think. <laughs> I think it is. I think it coming from I believe the the reviewer was Sam Keen, who uh wrote The Ice Pick Surgeon and the Dueling Neuroscientists. And so I feel like from Sam that's a that's a compliment. Yeah, and so you're an author, a teacher, uh, a medical professional, obviously a doctor, a medical historian at Case Western Reserve University, and curator of the Detrick Museum of Medical History in Ohio. How do you have any time to <laughs> do anything else? Uh, is this is this everything? Is there well, more? Well, actually, um, well, there's been some changes actually since. Uh, probably since you saw my last bio. So I'm actually not at Case Western Reserve University any longer, but I am the editor-in-chief of the BMJ or the British Medical Journal's Medical Humanities Journal, which is based in London. I'm in Cleveland still, um, but it's based in London. So I'm actually the editor-in-chief of that journal. And I'm a freelance writer. I write for the Scientific American, Globe and Mail, Wall Street Journal. Um, I'm a book writer, as you as you point out. And I, I was a professor for many years, actually. Um, I, I was even on tenure track, so a professor of, uh, of literature and medical humanities in an English department. Um, I later then became a research, a senior research associate, associate in the history department. Um, and I even ran an anthropology journal for a while. So in a way, I, I'm, a, I'm a very interdisciplinary person. Um, and uh, to have my PhD, but I'm basically someone who operates at the intersections of medicine, history, humanities, and social justice. Right, right, and a, a very busy lady. Um, the subject of this book, of your latest, uh, Dr. Robert J. White, um, a very unique character with uh, some very uh, high aspirations, I guess I could say, Tell me a little <laughs> bit about what the man was trying to do. He was uh, active and practicing throughout the Cold War, through the 60s, out of the United States, and uh, quite a resume as well. But a little bit about him. What was his goal here with, uh, let's say, transplanting the soul? Yes. Uh, it's hard to get much higher goals than that, isn't it? Um, so a lot of this stems around the book, even though it is it's partly a biography about uh, a man who is accused of being a sort of Dr. Frankenstein figure and pushing the boundaries of science too far, while at the same time being a really well-beloved uh, scientist and surgeon here in Cleveland. Um, but it's also a cross-sectional history of 
of transplant science in general. So when you think about it, we've only been transplanting organs for a relatively short period of time. Uh, it's been less than 100 years, you know, that we've been able to transplant organs successfully. But the, the issue surrounding that is if, if I want to take an organ and put it in someone else's body, um, it might be one thing if it's a kidney and, and you can survive on the other one. But what if it's a heart transplant? How do we get a beating heart, a living heart out of a body, um, but not kill that other body? So how are, when are you dead enough to have your organs harvested? And this is a question that really plagues and haunts uh, the early transplant science and it had a lot of people very, very worried for, for good reason. For one thing, um, in South Africa, when they performed one of the heart transplants, they took a heart of a black man and put it in a white person. And this was during apartheid. And there was huge concern that medicine was going to start harvesting minorities' bodies, you know, to preserve white bodies. And so it, lots of, of scary ethics. And they, they needed to figure out, okay, how do we know for an absolute fact that you're dead enough for us to take your organs, so brain dead, but still have a living body that has organs that are viable. And this is a question that Dr. White kind of starts off trying to help answer. And, and this is partly what leads him on that journey of asking, where in our body do we personally, our, our personalities reside? And if it's the brain, then when the brain is is dead, Technically, you should be dead, but how do we know when the brain is no longer functional? And so that's a lot of what motivates him from the beginning is trying to figure out that murky space between life and death. Right. <clears throat> Excuse me. So what he had done was transplanting a monkey brain, uh, macaque monkeys, and he had some level of success with this. Now, first, I should mention that some of the techniques and the science that he developed is still in use today. He mm -hmm. was nominated yeah. for, uh, nominated for, um, forgive me, the, uh, the, the big award. Oh, a Nobel <laughs> Prize. Yeah. <laughs> That's the one, the Nobel Prize. And I mean, he had some success with transplanting a monkey brain. Again, as you as you mentioned, the question is always, you know, not can we do this, but should we do this? And a lot of people pushed back and, and had a problem with this. He was a, a Roman Catholic and actually advised to two separate popes. Mm -hmm, That's indeed. fascinating. It is. <laughs> it's it's very he had a really unusual life. And I kept thinking things were just rumors. And then I would investigate them. So for instance, someone told me that he advised a pope. And I thought, yeah, sure he did, whatever. No, he advised two different popes. So um, it, the story just kept getting bigger and more interesting. But you you know, when it comes to ethics, um, he, he was very interested in ethics. In fact, he helped establish the Vatican Council for Bioethics. But at the same time, there's still questions to be asked today about what are the limits of animal experiment and are there animals we shouldn't be experimenting on? So you have people who argue we shouldn't experiment on any animals at all, uh, not mice, not anything. And then there's others who say, well, it's okay to do other mammals, but you shouldn't be experimenting on the higher primates. And so his research on monkeys hits that, that gray area, that place where there's a lot of people 
uh, feel quite uncomfortable. And I, I have to admit, in researching the book, I read things that made me feel uncomfortable about those surgeries. Namely, um, it, the first thing he had to do was figure out how to isolate a brain. And, and in other words, to keep a brain alive beyond its body. So we know a body can outlive its brain, right? That's what we call brain death. But a brain can technically also outlive its body. So what does that mean? And so what he wanted to do was to take a monkey's brain, its head and its brain, and keep it alive and still functioning and still still thinking without its body. And he did that partly by flushing the uh, the brain with the blood of another, a sort of donor monkey. And this he manages to have this this head and this brain living without a body, without its own body, and still thinking, still hooked up to EEG, still producing, you know, the basically the the signals that we expect from a living thing, but it doesn't have a body. So his question was, if brain death isn't real death, then how do you explain a head that outlives its body? And these were questions that were both fascinating and interesting medically and scientifically, and also quite terrifying in many aspects and even horrifying to some people. I think to a lot of people, but along the way, he did invent techniques that we actually still use today, particularly in brain and in heart care. Right, right. Um, something for for cardiac arrest, brain cooling. I think they called mm-hmm. it. Yes, and uh, the brain is really greedy. It needs oxygen, uh, so much oxygen, or else it simply dies. And therefore, to stem off brain death, he discovered that you could cool the brain down. And it needed less oxygen. Well, obviously, that's very helpful if you're trying to isolate or transplant a brain or head. But it's also helpful if you've had a, a terrible, you know, cardio cardiovascular problem where suddenly there's no oxygen, no, no oxygenated blood going to the brain. They can hypercool and that protects you from brain damage. They also use it for certain kinds of surgeries where stopped heart surgeries are, are, are ways that uh, allows them to basically protect you from from brain damage. Right. Now, what was it like when you were given this man's journals? Because I understand that's how this this came about, as you were handed a box or uh, doctor's journals and were able to read his notes. What did you find there and how? what kind of thrilling and feeling that must have felt amazing to have this story placed in your hands and read this man's work? I, I have to be honest. I felt a bit pursued by this story. I actually originally didn't think this was something I wanted to write. I felt like, well, you know, I was working in other areas and it sounded pretty far out and I just wasn't sure I was interested until I saw the the archival materials, which I received from, uh, from a friend of mine who's a neurosurgeon who happened to know the family. And uh, just really interesting to go through those papers and realize that he wasn't just some, I, I think you, you hear head transplant and you think, well, he's a kook, you know, you wouldn't do that sort of thing. But in fact, he was a fascinating, highly intelligent, I think probably genius level, you know, someone with sort of eidetic memory, kind of a Nikola Tesla style type person. And he did, he created surgeries and technologies in his mind and then made them into reality. And so the more I read about him, the more fascinated I became that he seemed to be two people in one. Um, but of course, that's true of so many of us, isn't it? We, we have competing interests and competing goals sometimes, 
each of us do, you know? And so as I read, I thought on one hand, it seems remarkable. You have this uh, devout Catholic father of 10 children, well-beloved surgeon who, in fact, he's practically a hero here in Cleveland. He saved so many people's lives. And you also have this person who does these somewhat macabre experiments on animals and loves the limelight and is a, a bit of a provocateur and provokes the animal rights people. You know, So you have these two impulses in one person. And honestly, it was that that friction and connection that did it for me. I just thought, well, this is amazing. I, I, I want to know more about this conflicted, interesting, sometimes hero, sometimes anti-hero person in this crazy time period, which is the Cold War, the civil rights movement, the animal rights movement. There are spies, there's trips to Moscow. I actually had to go to Moscow myself to do some of the research because it was very difficult to uncover certain things. And it just seemed like... Um, a puzzle box. And the more things I opened, the more interesting it became. So I was reading over some of the reviews and this Dr. White was an inspiration for an X-Files character. Is that true? <laughs> yes, it is. So Frank Spotnitz, who is the uh, producer and also writer for X-Files, was working on the second X-Files movie, the I Want to Believe. And there's a head transplant in that movie, he was researching it and discovered that one had actually been done and he was astonished. So he took, he booked his jet and he flew to meet Dr. White and asked him quite a lot of questions to sort of flesh out his ideas. It's a poor choice of words, flesh out his ideas about head transplant. And he found himself both compelled and slightly, um, a little bit creeped out, I think, uh, by Dr. White's demeanor, because he said, you know, he seems very grandfatherly and very kind. And yet the blase sort of run of the mill way he talks about just randomly taking heads off of things and attaching them to other bodies was an incongruity that he found hard to get around. But yes, so the X-Files movie, in fact, Frank is going to be joining me for a show on October 28th, where we I have a peculiar book club, which is a live stream. And he's going to come on and talk a little bit about Dr. White and how strange it was and the way that it influenced his uh, his movie. You've written other books. Uh, how many? What what number is this for you? Oh, um, if you count the first, the first one was an academic book because I started off in academe. If you count the academic book, this is my fourth, but it's my third trade nonfiction book. Uh, I wrote one called Death Summer Coat which is a history of uh, basically a cross-cultural look at death and dying in the past, but also um, in other cultures. There's a second one that was called Clockwork Futures, which is a look at, you know, we didn't always have the ability to manufacture power, you know, to control electricity. So it's a history of that process and the scientific discoveries that made that possible. And then this one, Mr. Humble and Dr. Butcher. And and that title is is very much reminiscent of a of a Doctor Jekyll, Mister Hyde. Um, where did Mister um, the Doctor Butcher part? I understand. Where did Mister Humble come from? So I, I ended up choosing the title based on two nicknames that Doctor White had. He was called Doctor Butcher by. PETA, the People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals. And in fact, he did uh, lock horns with Ingrid Newkirk, who's the founder of PETA. And I interviewed her uh, extensively for the book about that experience, about the, their sort of um, various 
debates and things like that. But he called himself Mr. Humble. And first of all, I think that we're invited to be somewhat um, suspicious if someone calls themselves Mr. Humble. And he was not a humble person. He was actually had an enormous ego and he admitted it himself. So it was somewhat tongue in cheek, this idea that he was Mr. Humble. But it does reflect the fact that he did believe in being a, a humble person in terms of his religious views. And he was very devout. And so again, I thought that these two nicknames gave you a window onto the two personalities or two sides of his personality that he had, because there is, there's a touch of the Jekyll and Hyde to this story. Right. Medical science and medical research has had to do a lot of this kind of nasty business to make the leaps and bounds that it has. Um, in fact, I've always heard the uh, comparison from, you know, have, have rats, paid their dues for black plague and all of the, <laughs> and all of the r wonderful research and all of the medical advances that rats have, have, mm -hmm. have made possible. Have they paid for the black plague issue of hundreds of years ago? So I can see, you know, sometimes you have to break an egg, I guess, to make an omelet. If that's a fair comparison. I'm not sure if that's even more macabre. It's, it's um, very, it's, it's difficult. Dr. White's argument was that, you know, there's human children at stake. And so a lot of times he used personal stories of people he'd saved. He saved a lot of young children from cancers or other things. And he would tell people, the only reason this little girl is still here is because I tested these things and learned these things on mice or dogs or, you know, monkeys. And he liked to make the comparison to say, would you not want to save your child over a mouse? You know, so he was very um, adamant that animal research was necessary. I Ingrid Newkirk and the PETA folk argue that, you know, we've done all we need to do with animal research. And now we should be able to do things that don't involve animals. And so some of it is a, a question of deciding what's worth it. You know, if you have to test uh, vaccines on animals, that shouldn't that still be a reason that animal experimentation is useful? Some people argue, no, some people say, no, that's, that's, we shouldn't do that. So it's, it's a test of wills, but in both senses, someone is trying to argue for the life and the saving of lives. And so I, I ended up having a lot of sympathy for both sides, the physicians and the surgeons and scientists and researchers who are performing experiments on animals, even experiments that might make me feel, you know, pretty squeamish or pretty upset. At the same time, they're trying to save lives. And of course, animal research or animal rights activists are also trying to save lives or trying to save the lives of animals. And so um, I honestly came away from it feeling as though the two sides, um, they, they almost, I mean, I think science is better for having agitators. I think science is better. I think we treat animals better in science now because of animal rights activists. And of course, animals that are well treated are going to make better research subjects because they're not going to skew your findings because they're stressed or sick or unhappy. And so I, I, I think that actually it's ended up being an, an odd partnership of sorts that's probably made both science and uh, research animals' lives better. Right. Now, I read recently, and, and I'm sure, <laughs> excuse me, I'm sure you have heard of this as well. A, an Italian doctor wanted to do a head transplant recently. 
Yes. Uh, his um, name is Sergio Canavero. Right. And he had a patient that was willing to go through with this process, but then it ultimately did not because I, well, I'm not sure why, but he, <laughs> I think the fellow backed out or changed his mind. Yes. But... I, so I actually wrote about it in the, it's in the very last chapter of the book. And uh, Sergio Canavero is building directly from Dr. White. There, there could be no uh, head transplant ideas today if there hadn't been Dr. White. He sort of opened a Pandora's box, if you will. And he published his findings publicly and in research journals. And so it's it's easy to replicate something that's already been done, uh, even if it's difficult to make it successful. So Sergio Canavero picked up White's research and he wanted to add to it. So if you perform a head transplant, and Dr. White did do this on monkeys successfully. The transplant head lived for nine days. Uh, he also wanted to perform one on a human being, and he had plans himself, but it didn't end up going through. Once you're finished, and the only reason to do this is if the body is failing, by the way. Dr. White tended to use people like Stephen Hawking as an example, that this is someone for whom this would be a last resort. But once you perform that head transplant, you've severed the spinal cord and the body cannot be controlled by the brain. You're paralyzed. Sergio Canavero wants to perform the surgery, but also has been doing research. He thinks that there ought to be some way to try and reconnect the spinal cord. So far, there's not. There's not actually anything that's... There's research into stem cells and uh, polyethylene glycol and lots of other things. But so far, we've not been able to reestablish those kinds of connections. Um but he wants to perform this partly as a way of uh, extending life. You know, if you, your body has cancer and he wants to give you a brand new body. Your body is old and he wants to give you a new body. So Canavero has had all of these ideas and he did have a patient who was uh, quite ill, had a muscular degenerative disease who did agree to be his patient. But what happened was... Uh, in the long-term waiting between agreeing and, and the surgery, he met a woman and fell in love and they got married. And for him, his life, as limited as it might be, was worth living and he didn't want to risk dying on an operating table. And so that's why he backed out of the surgery. It's a fascinating story about what we think of when, when, we, when we think about lives and lives worth living and what these surgeries might be for. Um, it is a really interesting question because, of course, a lot of people ask Dr. White, why are you even, why are you doing this? What's the point? And his point was always, ultimately, to save or extend human lives. Right. And that that sounds like a movie script, a man in that situation, <laughs> and then love saves the day and saves his life. and. <laughs> I mean, it really does make an interesting, and then the science and medicine behind it would, would make an interesting script idea, maybe. I think so. <laughs> One last question, Brandy. Do you think that there are other doctors that are still trying to perfect this? Is this science still going on? It actually is. So Sergio Canavero, who I mentioned uh, before, he has found a partner to work with named Xiaoping Ren, and that he is in China, Xiaoping Ren, and they've continued working this time with mice. They're trying to reattach the spinal cords of mice and they have claimed that they've been successful. Now there's a lot of people who are a bit skeptical about that, but they have produced peer reviewed articles and some video footage claiming that they've actually been able to bypass some paralysis. And that has further energized Sergio's quest to try and ultimately scale up this 
for human use. Um, Sergio Canavero has also performed a head transplant trial using human cadavers just to sort of see how things go. So no, it is not dead in the water. It's definitely still percolating out there in the world with, uh, with that kind of research happening at the moment in China. I mean, we're getting into almost Frankenstein territory. It's true. I mean, one of the things that is happening apart from all of this is we're we're getting so much better at figuring out how to bypass the the spinal cord. So, for instance, uh, neuro uh, neuromodulation, electrical stimulation, where people are trying to bypass injuries using electrical stimulation directly to muscles and having the brain actually communicate with the muscles via computer. I mean, we're we're getting to the point of science fiction, and Doctor White always said we would. Uh, he claimed that there was he was absolutely certain that in within the next fifty years he said this in two thousand uh, in the year two thousand he said in the next fifty years this will no longer be science fiction it'll be science fact yeah uh, it often turns out that way doesn't it even if it shouldn't sometimes <laughs> Gene Roddenberry and Star Trek still trying to get a teleporter yeah there was all this all this stuff still happening. <laughs> So in the last couple minutes, Doctor, is there anything else that you would want to share about your book, about your story, about anything? Well, you know, I really enjoy writing. I do. And I think um, people who become authors full time, we're typically not doing it for the money (laughs) because there often isn't a whole lot of money involved. But we do it because these are these are important stories to be told. And especially for for me, for this one. You know, a lot of things would have been inaccessible, I think, to a general readership. I had to go through and read a lot of texts on neurology and neurosurgery, and I ended up uh, actually bringing on consultants, um, one person on animal ethics and also a neurologist, just to help me kind of sort through things because I wanted to make this something everyone could understand but still be accurate. So for me, trying to get that message out and making it accessible to people is huge. And I think probably the most important thing. Yes, absolutely. I I believe history is very important. And these kinds of stories, as you mentioned, are not out there in the general public. It's not something that you would generally have access to. So you've done a a good thing for the documentation of weird science, I would call it, (laughs) (laughs) and weird medical history. It's It's a fascinating subject. And I really enjoyed talking with you. You know, it's funny. I, I, I've written a lot of, I've written other books as well, but there's nothing like walking into a room and saying, you know about that head transplant in 1971, right? And then just walking out and watching how many people just follow you going, there was a what, when, where? Well, it's funny. Sometimes, sometimes fact is actually truly stranger than fiction. You couldn't make it up. Agreed. Agreed. I'm looking forward to uh, any future books that you have. I really want to thank you again. Thank you. It was really great being on. Uh, the name of the book, once again, uh, Mr. Humble or Doc, Dr. Butcher, Mr. Humble and Brandy Skillishay. Where could people find your website and read more? Sure. So I'm I'm easy to find. So Brandy is uh, obviously a, a, a drink and alcohol. Um, and <laughs> it's a it's it's not an un, it's not a usual name to be stuck onto Skilache, which is Italian. So I find that I am apparently the only Brandy Skilache out there. So if you type in my name, my last name S C H I L L A C E, and you go hunting, you will find me. I'm I'm a bit everywhere. My website's brandyskilache.com, 
and I run a number of book clubs and my other work is out there and easy to to get to. I hope you guys enjoy reading the book. It it doesn't read like a dry science. It, it reads a little bit like maybe a spy novel, <laughs> but it it's 100% accurate. It's true. This this all of this really happened and that's what makes it so mind-blowing. Yes, it does. Thank you again for being a guest on the show today. I really do appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you all for listening to Times Like Now. This episode was brought to you by the letter C for caffeine, America's favorite drug. Also brought to you by the number 38, which is this episode of the show. Thank you to the letter J, Cody Robertson, for original music. Past episodes can be heard wherever you get your audio programs. I'm Trevor Collins, and I can be reached at trevor at timeslikenow.com. I look forward to speaking with you all next time. Good night.